Welcome to the Calibre podcast, brought to you by the Watchers of Switzerland Group. In this episode, our VIP sales director, David Lindsay, meets with Ken Kessler, watch journalist, historian and collector. The pair discuss all things pre-owned, from where to begin when buying a pre-owned watch, the benefits of purchasing pre-owned, right through to personal anecdotes of buying a pre-owned watch from Ken Kessler himself. Hello, my name is David Lindsay and I'm here from Watches of Switzerland. I'm the VIP Sales Director and today I'm going to be talking about the ascent of pre-owned watches, which was reported to be so great that Bloomberg even mentioned that the growth will soon surpass that of new timepieces. In order to get a professional and a specialist view of this, I'm here with Ken Kessler, who is a watch journalist, historian and collector. Hello, Ken. How are you? Hello, David. Good to see you again. Thanks to you, sir. Right, tell me about uh, what I've just mentioned about the growth of pre-owned watches. I'm, obviously, you have a history yes. of selling pre-owned watches. I was, I was selling pre-owned watches before the term pre-owned even came into use. I'd say from about 1979 to 1999, I was buying and selling watches, but strictly to build up a collection. I didn't make it a career. What happened concurrently with that, as you all know, because it coincides with your career. The mechanical wristwatch not only made a comeback, but it became a thing in terms of watch-only auctions, which previously would have been pocket watches and clocks, and magazines started arriving, and the brands that were damaged by the arrival of quartz suddenly re-emerged with mechanical watches, and quartz became the mass market buy. And enthusiasts and people who prefer the luxury element were buying mechanical. But what's changed, and which is especially pertinent for watches of Switzerland and other retailers, is that prior to the last decade, most retailers of watches hardly took a look at pre-owned, secondhand, or vintage, whichever term you want to, want to use. Pre-owned is the more polite one used in secondhand, seemed to be expressed down market. But while there were specialists, especially in London and New York, who dealt in vintage, let's say, stores like uh, Watches of Switzerland would not necessarily give space over to pre-owned because the whole business model, margins, warranties, were completely different. When you sell a brand new watch, both you and the customer have the security of the warranty and knowing that it's brand new. A used watch, you have no idea where it's been, who's been inside it, what the repairs were like, which made it more of a challenge. Ironically, though, some of the retailers of new watches saw this coming. And there was a, uh, an expression used in the States. You would go into uh, a quality jewelry store that had a nice watch department, and you would see a section called estate jewelry. And these were when they cleared out estates if someone had passed away and mixed in with uh, Victorian rings and, and necklaces that were probably unwearable by today's standards, would be vintage watches. And it was, again, I, I hate to use the cliche, but that perfect storm of collecting, the return of mechanical watches, they all combined to change the reason why people bought pre-owned. Pre-owned used to mean a savings, and that was the reason why people bought used watches. The ones, the A-list brands, the best of the best of the best, when they were secondhand, cost less than the new model. 
That has now changed. The majority of people listening to this podcast will have an interest in watches, but they won't necessarily have the means to get to um, the, the, the avenues where me and you would be mm. able to get to. And my point is this. With the, um, the current day people looking to possibly part exchange or sell one of their watches, how does the civilian begin the process of um, buying, a, you know, selling, trading in a watch or buying a pre-owned watch? What would you advise for them to do? There's a number of uh, aspects to entering the world of pre-owned watches. The first one being the reason why. And we have to distinguish between what I would call normal people and enthusiasts. Because enthusiasts already know what they want. They're, they have no question about owning multiple watches. I know people with over a thousand timepieces. On the other hand, there might be a person who just wants one or two good watches so the, the immediate or initial start is finding out which type of watch, not necessarily which brand, but which type of watch. For, and the categories, the three main categories are a dress watch, a watch for whatever your business would be, and a leisure watch. Now, there are a few watches that cover all. For example, a Patek Philippe Nautilus, a, a Rodemar Royal Oak, most Rolexes, you could wear those with black tie as well as on the beach. So the first requirement is deciding what do you want. And a golfer may have a different requirement from a, a scuba diver. You then start looking at which brands specialize in these areas. And fortunately, with most of these categories, in every single one of them, as we discussed in our YouTube series, all of the great dress watches, diving watches, military watches, chronographs, they all go back uh, to the, uh, a century to when the wristwatch uh, first arrived. The first, first wristwatches were actually made for, for pilots. The diving watches are coming up to the century because they appeared in the 30s and so on and so forth. So the choice is vast. What that means, and I remember an expression from the hi-fi world, a very uh, important designer once said, that the customer confused buys nothing. And you know from selling new watches, if a client comes in and says, I need a dress watch, and in this store alone there are probably 60 choices. It's up to you to explain to that customer what the difference is between the brands, the size, the movement, the price, whatever arbiters there are. The same applies to pre-owned. So the second stage is, what is your budget? So you've decided for, I'll try to give examples. You've decided you want a diving watch that's slightly dressy and your budget is five to 6,000 pounds. You can then easily go online just to get a general idea. So once the budget has been determined and the type has been determined, the next step is a bit more vague and also a bit of luck. If you know any friends who are watch enthusiasts, and they are not in the business and they have no agenda, they can help you as well. The only problem there is they're going to express their bias. So if you happen to talk to a guy who's crazy about chronographs from Breitling and Tag Heuer, those are the ones he'll talk you into and the other 500 on the market won't get a look in. The next stage would be ensuring that whoever you're buying the watch from will cover you. Once you've gotten to that stage, then you can start looking at specific models. It's not as complex as I might have made it sound, but it's simply a case of process of elimination. 
the example I always give of watches versus other uh, types of commodities, there's a reason why the supercar market is so successful. And that's because there's only around 20 players at the Ferrari, Maserati, Lamborghini level. There are over 600 watch brands in business today, according to the numbers I've seen. Choosing from 20 sources versus choosing from 600, as I said earlier, the customer confused buys nothing. So this process of elimination is absolutely paramount if you're going to walk away with a watch that's right for you, which brings us to the last part. And I say this to everyone, unless they're in the trade and they're buying watches to turn around for profit, never buy a watch you're not actually going to wear because you'll be unhappy with it. The cliche, which is no longer fashionable, is women that have 400 pairs of shoes and they only wear 20 of them and 380 sit there gathering dust or they've got 65 handbags and they only use three of them. I'm guilty of that in other areas with fountain pens and so on and so forth. But when you're talking about, say, a 5,000 pound purchase, you don't want it sitting in a drawer. And when you are, when you are, um, you know, looking at for, uh, when you are looking at for the piece that you've, you've seen, you've, you've identified a, a specific model that you're keen on. What are the actual things to be to, to look out for and to be wary of, would you say? Well, the problem with the most popular watches is faking. But as I said, that's dealt with immediately if you go to a legitimate dealer. Uh, watches of Switzerland will ensure that your watch is not going to be uh, grabbed by the police six months down the road. Uh, any auction house, any retailer, the liability is too great to deal with fakes. So that's not the kind of issue it was, say, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, if you were buying at watch fairs and antiques fairs, you didn't know what you're getting. I must be incredibly lucky because over the years, I've owned at least 1,500 watches. And I, I was only purchased two, two fakes by mistake that were so good, the watchmaker I use had to take them apart. One of them was a Rolex, which you would expect because it's the most faked, but the other one was an Amiga from the 50s, and it wasn't something you would expect to have been faked. And had my watchmaker not been that savvy, I wouldn't have known. I, I don't want to belabor that point because I don't want people to be fearful, especially if they're coming to places like Watches of Switzerland. That is no longer an issue. But even when you've narrowed it down to watch type and say two or three brands, you then have hundreds of models. Now, hardcore watch enthusiasts don't want to hear this, but the reality is anyone buying a watch, the first thing that hits them is the look. I don't, unless you're a watchmaker who's only fascinated by movements, and I do know people like that, they don't care what the case or dial is like. But for most people, you want a watch that you love looking at because you're going to be looking at it five, six times an hour. And if you're a watch nut, it's going to be 10 or 20 times an hour. And you're not going to wear something deliberately ugly just because it's the cool watch of the month or because it's expensive. I don't know how some people do buy things for reasons other than loving them, of course. But with something as personal as a watch, which you do physically wear, which could be an investment, which certainly could cost a lot from the outset, the initial reaction is going to be the look. 
Next, you have the provenance. That is not an issue as we've discussed. You know it's genuine. It's even better if you have a pre-owned watch with a box and papers. Once you start looking at watches that are 50 years old, you're very lucky to find a box. You're very lucky to find the papers. But if someone, uh, again, pre-owned versus vintage, vintage usually means quite old. Let's talk pre-owned, watches under 15 to 20 years old. Most people will have kept the boxes and papers. That's a, a, a modern a realization, whereas I'm sure that in the 1950s, someone buying a watch might have thrown the box away. Again, those matters are dealt with because you're dealing with professionals who have done all the vetting for you. You then... Again, this kind of rules out the online. So if you're going into a physical premises like Watches of Switzerland, you actually get to try the watch on your wrist. Now, anyone can easily take out a rule and measure the difference between a 36 millimeter case, a 40 millimeter case. Only the individual knows whether their wrists are small. For example, I have small wrists and I learned after many years that the ideal size for me is a 38 to 40 mil watch, even though I own a couple of Panerai's which look like clocks on my wrist. Trying on the watch is, it's the same reason why I differ from my son who's a millennial. He buys clothing online, not me. I go into the store and I wanna try on those trousers or the shoes or the shirt. It's the same with a watch. Uh, people might find this uh, a bit of an exaggeration or, or hyperbole because watch straps and bracelets are adjustable. But it's not just the circumference, it's how it actually feels. So it's, it's basically common sense. The only other mystery, uh, again, in, in trying to advise a newcomer, is the price. And before we started this session, we discussed the various means one comes up with to price a watch. Now, when I was in the, the, the business all those years ago, there were no norms. The prices were all over the place. There weren't even watch magazines. Now, it's very easy to find the range of a specific model. So unless you're talking about something so rare that only a couple exist, you, which would then be watches in the millions, if you're looking at a popular diving watch, for example, you can go online, there will be 50 vendors that will give you the range in which you expect to pay. So let's say there's a watch out there that the prices range from 1,000 pounds to 2,500. You then start looking at why is one 1,000 and why is one 2,500? Now, for example, eBay or WatchFinder or yourselves, will say, here's the condition. One will say mint, one will say battered. This one has the box and papers, this one doesn't. Now, when you start talking about the most collectible watches, the top, top Pateks, Rolexes, Audemars, the box and papers can add thousands. It's just something to do with collectors. Taking it away from this subject, a battered dinky toy might be worth a fiver, but with the box, it's worth 50. So the packaging becomes another factor. Again, depending on the age of the watch and also delineating between pre-owned and vintage, as leaving aside used and secondhand, let's just say pre-owned versus vintage, the box and papers are likely to be there. And even if they're not, if someone buys a pre-owned watch from Watches of Switzerland, box and papers are not, they're going to have a warranty. And that warranty is it's actually beyond value because, 
because the, the cost of servicing now is so high. Yeah, we have a we have a two year warranty with watches of Switzerland pre owned models. So we that's as good as some brand new watches. Exactly, everything you can buy with confidence from and, and anything which you see in any of our pre owned uh, environments. And we also have our own in house watchmakers as well. Anyway, but in all of our showrooms, I've got two questions in one here for you, Ken. Sure. Actually, when you're looking at pre owned watches, are there any specific brands that you always kind of you, you, you have a look out for, and, um, and and following on from that question, the second part would be, what do you see are the next brands in a pre-owned domain for our listeners to think that could be a good, um, that these brands could be a good opportunity to keep an eye out for? Actually, that's a perfect question for me in particular, because I'm not a brand obsessive. I know co uh, collectors that collect strictly by brand. Now, this isn't so much about pre-owned, but about collecting per se. What you have to do if you become an omnivore about watches is you have to narrow it down. And every single watch collector I know bought a lot of pieces that they wish they hadn't. My categories have always been diving watches, even though I don't dive, pilot's watches, even though I don't fly, and military watches, simply because I love that functional look. Those are my three categories, but it was never by brand, it was by type or model. For more to the point, I was fascinated by what I would call not the usual suspects. Now, at the top of the tree, without any question, are Patek, Rolex, Audemars Piguet, Cartier, uh, Vacheron. There's about a dozen brands that reign supreme. The only ones I would leave out are the brands that have only been around for 25 to 30 years. That's another category which we can save for another podcast. I'm talking about the brands that have history. What always baffled me in the pre-owned market were brands that were ignored, which were as good as, or which had a pedigree to match those top 10 or top 20. The ones I always loved finding were Gerard Perigo, Zenith, a Universal Genève, which I'm not sure is still around, early Tissot, and my personal favorite, which is Longines. Well, a lot of people don't realize, uh, because Longines are quite affordable now, a lot of people don't realize that they were an extreme high-end brand back in the day, and along with Gégé Le Coultre, probably created more movements than you can imagine. I remember back, sorry to interrupt you, I remember my second day in the watch industry back in the early 1980s. And I remember getting a Longines VHP Conquest out of the window. This is Whoa, not, yeah. not yeah. pre-owned at all conversation. Yeah, but yeah. And I remember saying to the, the, my manager at the time, what does VHP stand for? And he said, very high priced. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, Clearly not. Yeah, and now, yeah, now they're, yeah. they're affordable. And, and there were brands that, uh, again, that I don't think have the respect they deserve, which are Breguet and Blancpain. I, I adore these brands. Now, where this benefits the pre-owned, uh, the customer for a pre-owned watch, is that these are undervalued. For example, I purchased uh, a Breguet Type 20, which is arguably one of the finest chronographs money can buy, with a manufacturer movement. This would have been a model from about 2000. I actually did a trade-in to get it, so the price I paid is, is not relevant. But the price would have been less than 5,000 pounds. Now that's a lot of money to nearly everyone to buy a chronograph. 
But when you consider that the chronographs that are its equal are at 15 to 20,000, this shows you where pre-owned can still be a bargain. We have to clarify that the Rolex, Cartier, Patek, Audemars level, that has become the, a victim of the laws of supply and demand. And the prices now continue to ascend in a near vertical trajectory. And it's unfortunate for people that want those watches. But the good news is there are a few hundred brands out there that haven't hit that kind of inflationary issue. I'm not denigrating any of those for it, and I understand the laws of supply and demand, and I feel sorry for someone who would love to own one of those, but it's just out of reach. For me, an original Breguet and an original 50 Fathoms have always been just out of reach. It hasn't driven me crazy, but that's just the way uh, things, things have happened. But what this does lead to is the second part of your question. Among the brands that haven't been getting what they deserve, and for me, again, it's for 20 years, it's been Jugé Le Coultre, Gerard Perregaux, Ulysse Nardin, and Zenith. All four of them seem to be going through some kind of renaissance. Now, every one of those brands is manufacteur, which for the listeners that don't know what that is, that means they make their own movements, number one. Number two, they have the kind of histories that when you meet with a bunch of watch guys at, say, Red Bar or some event, there are stories to be told. Uh, Jaguar has the uh, the Reverso, which has been around for uh, it's coming up to ninety years, 1930s, I believe. Isn't it? Yeah. Uh, so it, it's the pedigree is unbelievable. Zenith, one of the first uh, manufacturers to make an automatic chronograph, phenomenal watches. Ulysse Nardin has a reputation for chronometers that goes back to the, I believe, the middle of the 19th century. It's 1846 they first started, isn't it? In the yes, yeah. And their, their coolest watches are the marine chronometers. And they, they look like something straight out of, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, Waterloo. It's wonderful. And uh, Gerard Perigo, I have a nostalgic uh, love for that brand because the first vintage watch I ever sold was a 1950s, I believe it was called a Gyromatic. And Gerard Perigo, uh, also, I was uh, one of the fortunate people that got to meet uh, the late Gino Macaluso, who saved the company. Mm -hmm. And most people don't realize what that company's pedigree is. But I believe that the Laureato has put them on the ascent. And to find an original from, I believe, the 70s. 75, it came Is it 75? Yeah. yeah. They're underpriced. They're not going to be Nautilus or Royal Oak money. So back to the previous question about what a pre-owned watch customer, a customer for pre-owned watches should consider, is the, the brands that aren't the ones that immediately roll off people's tongues. I'll give you a perfect example of an astonishing value watch that has pedigree and history and is making a comeback, and that's Doxa. Doxa was a very important watch in the 60s for diving, and I believe they were the first to bring out a, an orange dial. Another brand that uh, enthusiasts know, but which doesn't get the uh, coverage it deserves is Breitling. If you want a pilot's watch, you don't get more legitimate than uh, a Breitling Navitimer, which has never been out of production and it's as old as I am. Uh, there are loads of watches like this. And because I consider myself more of an historian than a journalist, 
when, I, when you come across a watch like a Cartier tank, sorry, tonk, if you want to do with the French, <clears throat> and you realize that Rudolph Valentino insisted on wearing his in 1926 in the final film he made, even though it, the film didn't take place in 1926, that's one of these wonderful little stories that for people who are proud of their watches and want to be able to talk about them with other enthusiasts, you pull up your sleeve and there's a Cartier Tonk on there, whichever model it is, people will go, you know, respect. It's, it, there are just so many out there. And this is why it's kind of disconcerting, if not necessarily discouraging, to think that most people are only looking at two or three brands. You really do have to broaden your horizons. And that applies to everything. Uh, if we were talking about electric guitars, we would be talking about Fender and Gibson. But then you also have Rickenbacker and Gretsch and Guild and uh, a hundred more. Uh, and I, I, a friends of mine that are guitarists, they don't necessarily gravitate to, to the Fenders and the, and the Gibsons. Uh, with cars, I'm sure that Porsche and Ferrari uh, dominate the, the high-end sector, but I see Maserati coming back. So Maserati is doing in cars what Gerard Perigo is doing in watches. This begs another question, which is about personal expression. And we said earlier that the first uh, response people have to a watch is what it looks like. Now, the whole of the fashion industry, of which watches are a subsidiary, a subsection, watches come under jewelry and jewelry comes under fashion. All of this is about expression, because if it wasn't about personal expression, we'd only be wearing blue jeans and hiking boots and other protective clothing. Clothing is an expression of your personality. Your glasses are, uh, are an expression of your personality. And you can be sure, especially now, that the language of the wristwatch is an expression that actually now has become a tool in business. So this adds another layer to it. And it's again, what I said at the very beginning, don't buy a watch if you're not going to wear it and you're not going to love it because otherwise you're just going to be unhappy with your purchase. That again is where you as the salesperson enter in because you will then be able to guide, especially a novice, you'll be able to guide the customer with such things as the provenance of the brand, the history, and say, if you buy this watch, you are buying 150 years of history, or you are buying from a company that innovated such and such a feature. And these things all add to it. And I'm sure the same applies in every other field if we were talking uh, Cleverly Shoes or uh, a raincoat from Aquascutum or any of this stuff. That's what makes the difference between brand A and brand B. Since the birth of the, the internet and obviously over time when, when, when dealers have become more, uh, business have become more trusted, have you noticed the transition of people's reticence to people's more, more, more of the acceptance to purchasing? And obviously now, going back to the, the, the Bloomberg um, report, whereby can, where, can you see in, in the future where pre-owned becomes more successful than new timepieces. So there's a couple of questions in there. Have you seen the transition and what are your thoughts about the future? Well, uh, as far as the past goes, um, I don't want to paint too gloomy a picture in terms of what it was like in the 80s and 90s, because in London alone, there are at least three specialists that I know of who have never really touched new watches and only deal in either vintage or pre-owned and their reputations are spotless. And if you went to these specialists, 
And again, this is before things went crazy. I'm talking companies founded in the late 70s into the 80s. Uh, and they also have their in-house watchmakers. And in fact, some of their in-house watchmakers have gone on to create their own brands. I'm not going to name check them because that's an, another topic. But 30 years ago, if you wanted a vintage watch, there were three or four guys in Mayfair that you know you could trust. And uh, as, as silly as this might sound, because they were bricks and mortar, you know they were going to be there the next day. Yes. They weren't going to be packing up like someone selling from the back of a lorry. So there, there has been for at least 40, maybe even 50 years, a network of specialists equal as, as well. The States has an equal number. Uh, I've been dealing with one uh, in New York for decades. And these gentlemen and ladies preceded the boom. They preceded the craze. So it's like they were visionaries and they would have had not just the usual suspects, but they would try everything. Uh, they would have everything. For example, the one in New York, he was a specialist and remains a specialist in American wristwatches. Now American wristwatches barely exist currently, but in the thirties, forties and fifties, you had great brands like Waltham and uh, Elgin and, and Bulova. And they're highly collect collectible, especially in the home market, in the same way that there are a lot of British collectors that want a Smith's because it was English. These retailers were as trustworthy as you can get. What's going to change and where the future is going to be, might be difficult for them, is both companies like yourself, which are much larger, have a much broader reach, a much broader selection, but also have factory backing. Now, of the specialists I know of in London, for example, only one of them is actually authorized, so to speak, to uh, sell pre-owned refurbished watches. What I'd like to think is that their reputations will, are strong enough so that they can coexist. Because there's room, the, the, the market is so huge now that there's room for both multiple retailers such as Watches of Switzerland, independent retailers that do new and, and pre-owned, and those who specialize just in pre-owned to all coexist. The demand is outstripping supply, both new and vintage. The main difference is with new watches, unless they're ridiculously small limited editions, is you can go into most uh, authorized dealers and buy that watch. But let's say you want a watch for your uh, I don't know, your uncle's 60th birthday, and you're looking for a watch from his birth year and a specific brand. Finding that is searching online, calling up dealers, because you've narrowed it so much that you're looking for a specific piece. This is where the hardcore specialists, especially if they're looking at older watches than watches of Switzerland might be looking at, that's where they come into play. Yes, um, with Watches of Switzerland, the beauty of nowadays, uh, uh, Ken, is that we have on the Watches of Switzerland website, you can go into it and it will show a, a pre-owned section. From there, the customer can then submit imagery of his or her watches, irrespective of the brand. With us, it's online, and so we have people who are able to um, determine uh, the, um, the price that we're able to give you. But we also will welcome, um, you know, people who want to submit other brands we may not sell, we might have sold in the past, that um, they can submit them online to us and we'll have a look at that.
Another good thing about what's happening with our pre-owned world is you mentioned earlier on about people buying watches and having a lot of our watch collectors have got watches that they don't wear. They've bought them along the way. Um, They may have been afforded a rare watch from a brand and they they've kind of like felt duty bound potentially to take it Mm, because there were there were um, and they just may have other watches that they've got sitting in their drawer that they don't wear very often. What I would say to those customers is submit that information online. All of our showrooms, obviously, we are we 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 love it when people come in. They don't necessarily have to buy all the time. We want we love customers to come in and we just talk watches with them. We have we have many different brands here, um, but we you know we welcome the growth of pre-owned because that's an area we you know we can maintain the relationship with our clients on that journey. It's interesting you should say this, David, because one of the elements that will keep the independent pre-owned watch specialist going is that everyone that I know of in central London with longevity has a program similar to that where if you buy a pre-owned watch from them and three years or four years later you want to uh, trade it in, they will give you a better than market value. What's in, What the listeners really need to know, and this is whenever you see those TV reality shows like the ones in pawn shops, where someone is told that their this first edition book is worth $500 and they're offered $300. Most people refuse to accept that retailers have overheads and that it isn't a charity. There has to be a margin made. So a watch that can will be sold for a thousand pounds when it's sold in, bought in from the customer, and they're only offered 400 or 500, they have to accept that a couple of hundred pounds is going to come out of the retailer's pocket to get that serviced so that the retailer can resell it with full confidence, and there has to be a margin. This is basic economics. This isn't militant capitalism or some kind of threat to society. It's the basic laws of finance. So when someone, is selling in a watch, that's the the flip side of pre-owned as opposed to purchasing one, and the watch online is worth 5,000 pounds, you are not going to get 5,000 pounds for it. The reseller has to service, service the piece, warranty the piece, and cover his or her overheads. I kinda wish that one of the courses in schools was basic economics, so that this kind of issue doesn't come up. But equally, I don't want it to deter people from buying pre-owned. Again, if you're of the type where you're even marginally insecure about things like warranties, I know, for example, I bought a cooker and it took them three times to get it one that worked. Had it been used, I'd have been in trouble. But because it was brand new, the warranty covered it each time. There are customers that don't want any risk. And they're not going to look at pre-owned. But the ones that are slightly adventurous or more to the point have a single strand of collector or enthusiast in their DNA, pre-owned is is just phenomenal. And something you have to keep reminding people, and I might have referred to this earlier, new watches are available, current, you can go into a store. They're not making any more 1964 Hoyer Carreras. They're not making any more dirty dozen watches. You can get a reissue, a replica, I don't mean a pirated replica, but a brand's replica. But if you want 
1945 Dirty Dozen watch, there's a finite number. You want an original Cartier Tonk, there's a finite number. And that adds to the desirability of pre-owned watches. There's a romance there that this is why the Antiques Roadshow is such a hugely popular show. There's, the, the romance is, is undeniable. The mythology is undeniable. I look at some of my watches and I have no idea who owned them before I did. And I just love that little bit of a mystery. There's also the social proofing in pre-owned as well. You just touched in about, you have no idea who owned that watch before you, but you know that there was somebody else out there who also liked that watch. Maybe they knew a little bit more about watches than you, not Ken Kessler, but the, the individual. Mm. And that is reassuring to know that I'm not just making this decision myself on a watch which somebody else may not think has got a great aesthetic. There's somebody out there who's also thought, yeah, I really love that watch. And, and it's almost like a social proofing. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Um, but what's outside of the pre-owned watches are ones that are uh, family heirlooms. I have to say the, the two most cherished watches in my collection are my father-in-law's Amiga, which was given to him in the 1960s for X number of years service with, I believe, Texaco. And my father's 1948 Longines, which was the first watch he bought when he was demobbed after World War II. And my son will inherit those, and I'm, I'm hoping they will stay in the family. And they have a resonance that is unique because they are in the family. Then uh, Patek, for example, has created its own mythology by saying you never actually own a Patek. You look after it for the next generation. And I managed to acquire one when I turned 50, and it was one of my life goals. And uh, I'm happy to say that I will be living up to the ad, and my son will inherit a, a Patek Philippe Calatrava. And I have no idea who owned it before me, but clearly they didn't pass it on to the next generation. So I am the beneficiary of Got that. You. And uh, as a final note to the whole uh, matter of pre-owned, forget the old attitude about used or secondhand. Pre-owned is a far more genteel way of putting it, but an even nicer way, and I see this all the time, whatever ad genius came up with it, they're not pre-owned, they're pre-loved. Ken, it's been an honor and a privilege again to uh, listen Thank you, to your, uh, your informed uh, knowledge of this particular subject and well, many others we could go into, but uh, thanks for your time today, Ken, and uh, look forward to seeing you again soon. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Calibre podcast. We do hope you enjoyed it. Please do subscribe and listen to other episodes on Apple Podcast and Spotify.